0: pain talk a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them now here's your host palliative and emergency care physician dr maureen allen welcome back everyone to another pain talk podcast today i'm very excited to interview uh, dr trudy taylor who is a rheumatologist practicing in nova scotia so trudy was born and raised in antigonish county where she did her undergraduate degree at St. Francis Xavier University. She went on to pursue medicine at Dalhousie University, followed by internal medicine training at St. John's at Memorial University of Newfoundland. So it's interesting reading these uh, bios and you realize how much you've had in common with uh, some of these uh, amazing individuals. Uh, I also did my um, medical training uh, in Newfoundland uh, and also live in the Antigonish community. So it's wonderful that uh, there are connections that we all have so finally she did return to Nova Scotia to pursue subspecialty training in rheumatology at Dalhousie University where she has stayed on as a staff rheumatologist and associate professor at the medical school Trudy has a passion for education at all levels of medical education as well as education for patients and families she's won several international and national teaching awards and continues to dedicate her time both at work and outside of home to education in the field of rheumatology I was fortunate enough to to attend one of her sessions, and she is uh, extremely effective in reaching individuals and explaining complex situations or complex conditions, as well as the uh, pharmacotherapy that we might use in a way that we can all understand. So she has a gift for that. She's the immediate past program director for the adult rheumatology training program at Dalhousie University, and currently serves as chair of the rheumatology specialty committee at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. I want um, you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I was reading your bio and I went, oh my gosh, there's so much commonality, actually, uh, when I read some of your bio and I'll explain it later, but you tell us about yourself.
1: So I was born and raised in Antigonish County. I, I grew up in the county in Lock Harbor on a farm and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think had a real sense of uh, strong work ethic that sort of was was ingrained in me in that background. Um, and then I went to high school in Antigonish and Furthered my studies at Saint um, with a science degree in uh, chemistry and math, actually, oh. um, and then went on to Dalhousie for my um, undergraduate medical schooling, and then I went to Newfoundland Memorial University of Newfoundland to do my internal medicine residency, and then came back to um, Halifax and Dal to do my rheumatology residency. And stayed. And that was kind of my plan. Once I once I figured out where I was going from a professional perspective and, and what um, field I was interested in, I kind of always knew that I wanted to come back and practice in Nova Scotia, but yeah. thought that it was important to go elsewhere to get some experience outside of the province Um at some point in my training.
0: Yeah, I actually did my uh, medical training. I My background is nursing. I worked in outpost nursing and uh, spent about 12 years in Newfoundland. So when I saw Memorial, I went, oh, yeah, go girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the just to put it in context for people to understand, from your undergraduate degree till the way you finished your, I don't know, would they have called it a fellowship with rheumatology? Or, yep. Yeah. Yep. So how many years did that take?
1: So starting with my undergraduate science degree, after graduating from high school, it would have been 13 years.
0: Wow. Yeah. Jeez, that's a, it's a, it's just to put it into context sometimes yeah. for, for people to <laughs> truly understand. So yeah. what drew you to rheumatology?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because when I started medical school, I thought that I was going to be a family physician. And my plan was to come back and practice close to home. So I grew up in Lock Harbor. I thought I would probably either practice in Anna Ganesh or Sherbrooke. And, you know, I'm very close with my family. That's where I wanted to be. And so I, when I was in medical school, as you know, the first two years of medical school are mostly classroom learning. There is some kind of elective time where you get a little bit of experience, but uh, it's not really until you get into clinical clerkship in your third and fourth years where you're kind of doing more of that on the job training and trying out these different specialties. So when I was deciding about my clerkship rotations, I um, purposefully... Decided that I wanted to do internal medicine as one of my core rotations first. I did Mm. for a couple of reasons. One, I knew that it was going to be high yield learning, I knew that I would learn a lot that I would be able to use in other rotations. Um, And uh, two, I had always kind of heard dread from other medical students about how intensive and difficult internal medicine was and I kind of thought it would be nice to get that out of the way yeah. learn everything that I can use it but but get it done and get that hard one done up front which is a little bit how I kind of I like I just like to tackle things and get them done so yeah. I did that and to my surprise I fell in love with internal medicine mm-hmm. um, when I did that rotation so that was in the beginning of my third year so I I at the and I, but I kept an open mind and as I went through other rotations, I thought, you know, nothing really made me as excited as internal medicine did. And I kept coming back to that. And even when I did family medicine, I loved family medicine, but I still, I, mm. I liked internal medicine. I, I just, yeah. I liked a lot of the inpatient care. I liked the the inpatient teamwork. There was st- those types of things that drew me to it. So I decided that I wanted to pursue a residency in internal medicine. And so in fourth year, we do these electives Um, and so electives are just to kind of try out different specialties but they're also you know it's getting into residency is like it's like a job application so um, there is some some competitiveness to it and so you have to be a little bit savvy about what you choose to do for electives and so I thought well I want to do internal medicine I should do electives in some of the subspecialties in internal medicine. And I thought that will be, that will look great for my application. It will show that I'm I'm truly interested in this field, but then I thought I could use it to learn more about those subspecialties. And I specifically chose a couple of subspecialties that we don't learn as much about, or at least I didn't feel like I was as comfortable with them as some of the more core internal medicine subspecialties like cardiology and respirology, where Mm. we, we spend so much time. Yeah. So I chose rheumatology and infectious disease, um, and for my electives. And so when I did my elective in rheumatology, I just fell in love with it. It was at the time when um, our understanding of the pathophysiology of mm. of kind of these chronic, devastating rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis was really becoming better understood, and newer therapies were being developed that were having this tremendous impact on um, preventing destruction. Um, and improving you know, function and kind of lifelong outlook for people. Yeah. Um, and I just I found that it married that, you know great sort of medicine and science with still being able to have connections with patients and families because there's this kind of long-term chronic follow-up that happens in yeah. in the field of rheumatology. So, um yeah, so I, I just it it was a little bit by fluke, but um, yeah. But because I it's not something that we're necessarily exposed to early on in in medical training. Yeah. But uh, but I'm so I feel so fortunate that I yeah. that I happened upon it in that way. Yeah, and
0: I think it's a it's a it's an area of medicine too that you know your understanding of the of the immune processes and, and what happens with these particular diseases and that you can target therapies and almost get an immediate response for the majority of patients in yeah. terms of they feel better they've been yeah. feeling so crappy and uh, to be able to offer them therapies. And, uh, you know, when I think back even to my training, I mean, when we started to see, I can still remember uh, in medical school, you know, when they started talking about, you know, immunology and T4 cells and all this, and it was just like this this, this important stuff that they're, but I mean, everything comes back to the, it does. to how our immune system functions. It you know? really does. You,
1: you can tie and, in. Yeah, sorry, go and, ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, and, you know, even like when I reflect back now, because, I mean, that's the bread and butter of what I do.
0: Yeah.
1: But when I was learning that in medical school, we didn't know a lot of, we didn't yeah. know even quite how important it was. And, yeah. and so learning those basics has really proved to be, you know, even more important, I think, than we realized
0: yeah. in well, my
1: time. But, yeah. and, and has kind of, and not just in rheumatology. I mean, there are so many yeah. immune-mediated and, and auto-inflammatory diseases in every kind of specialty and exactly. facet of medicine that...
0: Uh, and there's yeah. so much more to discover too, you know. Exactly. It's, uh, so how would you describe the profession of rheumatology?
1: So, I mean, I think first off, I think, well, rheumatology is a subspecialty of internal medicine that I alluded to. So there you do have kind of that core training in internal medicine, which becomes important. So most people, when we think about rheumatology, would think about arthritis, um, and so we'd think about the joints. Um, it's interesting to see how rheumatology has changed over the years because it used to be kind of all arthritis was under the umbrella of rheumatology. And to some degree, you know, before we had this understanding of the pathophysiology of the inflammatory arthropathies, there was a big component of rheumatology that was a pain management. And, yeah. and, uh, and I think that's kind of branched off in more recent years so I think of rheumatology as dealing, yes, with arthritis, especially inflammatory types of arthritis, so the comp, the types of arthritis that cause inflammation and destruction in the joints as opposed to more common um, degenerative or post-traumatic arthritis like osteoarthritis or degenerative disc disease. The other piece of rheumatology that I think isn't always immediately obvious to people is that we deal more broadly with what I would call systemic autoimmune diseases. So autoimmune diseases where there is inflammation in many systems, many organ systems. So heart, lungs, kidneys, joints. So not just just uh, diseases that affect the joints, but the diseases that affect our, our system more broadly. Yeah. And those would be things like connective tissue diseases like lupus or vasculitis. And sometimes they don't even have, an ar- have arthritis as the presenting component. So it's kind of those arthritis, but plus, right, with the yeah. systemic, uh, yeah. systemic autoimmune diseases.
0: And I think sometimes the, there is an underappreciation of the significance of those systemic pieces of those rheumatological conditions um, and how impactful they can be as well. Because we think we we tend to as uh, and even even I mean I sometimes in, until we step back and realize how broad this area is is that we often just kind of focus in on joints right and and but it's so much bigger than that so this kind of leads into those you know and I know uh, we see a lot of mis and misperceptions in clinical practice especially uh, when I'm seeing patients who are living with persistent pain and they'll often talk about that I have. Uh, I have arthritis or I have rheumatic disease or rheumatism or, you know, just the terminology I think gets really, or I have inflammation that you're looking at tissue and you're not seeing inflammation, but you know that they're having pain in those areas. But there's lots of myths and a lot of terminology that gets kind of bantered around. So mm-hmm. what are some of the common things that you see in, in, in your clinical practice that people sometimes get mixed up?
1: There are a lot of myths out there. I think the biggest one is that arthritis in itself is a diagnosis, which really isn't the <laughs> case so yeah. You know, there are tens to hundreds of types of arthritis, I'll say. So I think that it's important for people to understand that there are different types of arthritis, which really have different implications. And so some people just say they have, like you mentioned, you know, they have pain and they'll say that pain is arthritis when it actually may not be arthritis at all. It may be yeah. a different cause for pain. Or they may say they have rheumatoid arthritis when they're mixing up the, t- the older term rheumatism with yeah. rheumatoid arthritis um and rheumatism really is more the pain component of things that seems to be localized to muscles and joints versus a true kind of inflammatory arthritis so that's that's a common one that kind of myth around the the terminology and really understanding the, the true underlying cause of pain i think the other big one that i see is that the myth of, that arthritis is an older person's disease and that I think has huge implications, you know, first of all, because sometimes people don't recognize that children can get arthritis. And certainly we see that. And I actually do the transition clinic where adolescents are, are being, when they're old enough, are being transitioned into the adult rheumatology world. I see those patients and follow them. And I think it's kind of under-recognized that the, that they thought that kids and adolescents can suffer. But even people in their earlier you know, year 20s, 30s can develop in arthritis. And so um, yeah. I think that's a huge misconception as well. Um, there's lots of misconceptions about management as well. So yeah, exactly. um, management with all kinds of different things. I think, you know, anything from uh, different types of bracelets that I've seen, like magnetic bracelets and copper bracelets that really don't have a lot of good grounding in kind of evidence that they truly do make a difference for for arthritis and arthritis pain but even different remedies that uh, that are out there as well that that really don't have a grounding in Mm. in science as far as controlling symptoms or preventing damage Um, so I think about things like glucosamine uh, chondroitin MSM there's there's a lot of them that are out there um, that that really haven't been proven, despite some rigorous studies looking at them.
0: What about what about um, uh, the the myth, and I guess this is sort of making that distinction between when we think of degenerative uh, processes versus inflammatory processes, and I think I may, maybe what I'll do is just get you to, what is the difference between osteoarthritis and degenerative uh, disease or degenerative arthritis?
1: I think most people think of it you know, as the same entity, I think of degenerative arthritis as being sort of a term that uh, is related to kind of natural degeneration, typically from repetitive trauma and the mechanics of what we do on a day-to-day basis. And one of those things can be osteoarthritis. Um, some things that we don't put the label of osteoarthritis on, like degenerative disc disease would fit into that yeah. category as well. But but I think they do all, um, I think that they fit nicely and can be lumped into a category of non-inflammatory arthritis degener- that is of a degenerative cause. There are other non-inflammatory types of arthritis that I would lump in there as well, like post-traumatic arthritis, um, so after having had a, you know, a, a fracture, for instance, and then developing um, arthritis after that.
0: So they both can hurt, obviously, but what's the importance about making the distinction clinically as well as for patients between an inflammatory process and a non-inflammatory process?
1: Yeah, that's it's a really important one. And sometimes it can be a hard one for people to wrap their heads around. I mean, I think on face value, we say, well, one can be caused by inflammation and the other is not caused by inflammation. Um, it's not quite that simple that we do know that there is some Kind of localized inflammatory response that happens even in degenerative um, and non-inflammatory types of arthritis. But when we talk about inflammatory arthritis, we're talking about obvious signs of inflammations and in the inflammation in the joint. so heat, obvious fluid swelling in the joint, sometimes redness and obviously pain. and, and not all those things aren't aren't specific to inflammatory, Um, arthritis, for instance, non-inflammatory arthritis, like you mentioned, will have pain. Mm. Um, And sometimes it can look like there's swelling, but it's not really fluid swelling. It's more bony enlargement, not that's happening. The reason that there's, it's so important to differentiate those two is that inflammatory arthritis can be autoimmune in nature. And when it's autoimmune in nature, meaning your immune system attacking yourself and causing inflammation, sometimes that doesn't just affect the joints like we were alluding to. It can affect other organ systems as well. So it's important to differentiate and keep in mind that this may not just be a joint problem um, for one. And then it has huge implications as far as the potential management because um, management of inflammation is very different than management of pain. And while there can be some overlap the management of inflammation turns out to be the most important target in inflammatory types of arthritis. And it can, it can, the goal is to get rid of inflammation and inflammation is what causes damage in those types of arthritis. And so it can actually Halt or at least slow down the progression of damage in the joints. Yeah, I think the long-term implication is so important. Exactly. Yeah. So another
0: driver of pain, and this is where I can get into the complexity of of patients that I'm seeing in the in the pain clinic who have coexisting uh, other types of conditions that coexist with uh, other processes that can drive pain. Can you try and help us understand uh, the differences between in, an inflammatory process? or a uh, process called sensitization, either peripherally or centrally, how they are different.
1: I mean, I think this is such a fascinating area. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think it's something that we're still learning about, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you and I are biased because, yeah. because this is what we yeah. deal with. But, but, um, but it is, uh, I think it's just, it's such a, a, a rapidly changing field too, as far as our understanding. So, mm. I mean, the way that I think about it, I try to come back to the old, what we learned in neurology, which was where is the lesion? What structure yeah. is being affected that's causing this presentation? So as you said, these both can cause pain, but where where's the problem? What's causing this? And so when I think about inflammation and particularly joint inflammation, the underlying problem is the joint. Yeah. The joint, usually the lining of the joint is getting inflamed. It's causing production of fluid that's being pushed out into the joint, which is making it swell. And usually in that fluid, there are proteins that we call cytokines that um, are part of the immune system. And they can attract more mediators that cause inflammation and sort of this vicious cycle that perpetuates and increases over time. And that causes the other features of inflammation that we talked about, the heat and the pain. Mm-hmm. And that that fluid and those, those proteins, those inflammatory proteins in it, are what causes damage to the joint too. Mm. So the joint is the main problem in that case. When I think about sensitization and you know far more about this than I do, but (laughs) I think about the problem being more caused by the nervous system. And so it's not the joint, it's the nervous system. And the difference between central and peripheral sensitization in my mind is really, are we talking about the, it goes back to sort of the neuroanatomy and, uh, Are we talking about the central nervous system, the spinal cord and the brain? Or are we talking about the peripheral nerves, so those nerves that are outside of the spinal cord and brain? And so that kind of localizes where the problem is. And the sensitization piece is kind of the the over-excitation of those areas. And then sometimes can be the perpetuation without even a stimulus to cause a neurologic response. So without a, you know, a stimulus like a pinprick or a trauma in the tissue causing the response, sometimes that can be perpetuated beyond when that stimulus happened. And and whether that's being perpetuated more locally in the peripheral nerves where your neurotransmitters are being increased or more centrally in the central nervous system, that can help differentiate central and peripheral sensitization. But I welcome your input no. on that one because i that's my, I, I think a rheumatologist's uh, yeah. view of it is probably very different than uh, than your view.
0: No, absolutely, you did a beautiful job. Um, there are some, it's interesting, I mean, the important thing is that the two conditions can coexist, which absolutely. creates a lot of complexity and compu- confusion for the patient when they're feeling pain uh, constantly. And not really understanding even though they've been told that you know certain markers have come down we'll talk about markers here in a sec but Mm -hmm. you know that or or that the or we could even make it even more broader and think about the orthopedic surgeon you know somebody's had a fracture Uh, that fracture is completely healed, there is no other secondary lesion or other processes, uh, that that patient can actually have, you know, more than one process that's contributing to that suffering or that pain experience. You know, the other thing that's interesting to me, um, I find it fascinating, is when we come back to that immune system and how glial cells and that cytokine pro-inflammatory kind of thing, is very common in some degree with these two illnesses, mm-hmm. uh, but very different in some ways as well. But there is a common linkage that that often happens, and I think it's it sort of ties into the, to that general pain response. Yeah. So how we prevent sort of that sensitization piece is understanding how that immune system works. Um, and how we can minimize that, uh, that cha- the changes that can happen within the tissue and the central nervous system, uh, especially when, when conditions are being managed. And it's another reason why it's so important that people with these inflammatory conditions get access to you sooner rather than later, because Absolutely. the longer they're left in these horrible pain states, um, the, the more likely they are to go on and to develop a persistent pain syndrome as well. So you're, what you do is so important, but having access to you is
1: <laughs> really, <Absolutely>. really important. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: All right, everyone, we're going to end there and pick it up next week, digging deeper into how inflammatory arthritis is our diagnosed. So until next week, stay safe and stay connected. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find
1: links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.